0: Our first Bible reading comes from the first uh, book of Samuel, chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. So that's 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 to 18. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan, or kettle, or cauldron, or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, "'Give the priest some meat to roast. "'He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only only raw.' "'If the man said to him, "'Let the fat be burned up first, and then take whatever you want,' "'the servant would then answer, "'No, hand it over now. "'If you don't, I'll take it by force.' "'This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, "'for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. "'But Samuel was ministering before the Lord.' a boy wearing a linen ephod.
1: And friends, please, uh, could you turn with me again to the book of 1 Samuel? I'm going to be picking up chapter 2 in verse 22. I'll be reading through to verse 26. So that's 1 Samuel, chapter 2, starting at verse 22 and reading through to 26. Let's hear from God's word. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with men. Well, Friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would... Speak to us now through your wonderful and holy word, uh, that we might be built up and encouraged where we need encouragement and rebuked where we need rebuke, um, so that we would be more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. One of my favourite movies of all time is a true story flick called The Untouchables, If you haven't seen it, it's set in the 1920s where mafia kingpin Al Capone ran the alcohol business. And so a young special agent called Elliot Ness is called in to clean up the town. And friends, if you think stopping the illegal alcohol trade by putting away one of the most powerful mafia bosses of all time, if you think that's a tall order, a pretty big job, well, Officer S had another one that was even more difficult, because as he soon found out, the entire Chicago police force were against him. They walked the beat for Capone, were on his payroll. And so the story follows this one person chosen to clean up an entire city completely ingrained in evil and corruption. Now friends, if you've been reading through the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel, you'd be noticing the parallels here. As Hannah's son in chapter 1 is also set aside to do a pretty similar job. And as we just saw in our reading today, Samuel, just like Officer Ness, is going to be completely on his own. But friends, before we dive in any further, let's join a few dots for anyone who was away last week. As we saw last Sunday, verse 3 of chapter 1 gives us the context. If you've got your Bible, look it up now, verse 3, chapter 1. And you'll see there, each year, Elkanah and Hannah would make a family trip to worship God. But we see there in verse 3, they don't travel to Jerusalem, but this city called Shiloh. And that little fact tells us that what we're reading here is a continuation of the story of the book of Judges. Basically, 1 Samuel picks up where the book of Judges leaves off. And as we saw last week, Judges leaves off with this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, to put it bluntly, Israel are spiritually and morally spiraling down the plug hole. And with that truth, or that truth, it it raises an immediate question for us as we continue. And that is, what is happening at this tabernacle? The place that's meant to keep Israel spiritually and morally on track. Well, second half of verse 3 of chapter 1 tells us, doesn't it? Have a look again at at, at the uh, second half of that verse says there, Eli the priest has handed over the, uh, the priestly baton to his two sons who are called Hophni and Phinehas. And so having found out how Eli finds himself with this tiny new recruit called Samuel, a recruit commissioned with turning this spiraling nation around, we now turn to these two key men who Samuel will be working with. Verse 12, have another look at it. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. And friends, with that little observation, we are now the full bottle in terms of what Samuel is up against, aren't we? The corruption of Israel in Israel doesn't stop at the door of the tabernacle, but goes all the way to the very top. And as we take that truth in, the immediate question it raises is, how will Samuel deal with this work environment? How will this internal corruption affect little Samuel? And closer to home, how does the corruption we see play out here affect us? Well, friends, with those questions before us, let's begin by seeing how this sin has found its way into the lives of these two men. Verse 13, as you see there, takes us inside the walls of the tabernacle and sets the scene for us. Have another look. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot And the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. Now friends, because we're not Israelites, not living 3,000 years ago under the old covenant, this little potluck lunch needs a little bit of explaining, doesn't it? So a couple of things so we know what's going on here. First up, if you served as a priest back then, you didn't need to... To, to grow your own food or, or go to the market to put food on the table. Now, it all came to you by way of the sacrifice. So how did that work? Well, while some sacrifices were completely burned up on the altar, most offered the fat of the animal and some other select portions to God, while the rest was for the family and the priests who helped them prepare the sacrifice. And then when it came to divvying up that meal, God was very clear what cuts were to be given to the priests. Now, if you want to learn more about that, have a look at Leviticus chapter 7 when you get home. Suffice to say, this is how it would work. After the sacrifice, the family would cook up what was left and then call in the priests and give them their allotted portion. But friends, that's not quite what's going on here, is it? Now as soon as that dinner bell rang, the priests, rather than waiting to be served, would instead grab a big old fork, plunge it into the pot and pick out his favorite piece. When this all started, we're not too sure, we're not told. But what we do know is this was the standard practice by the time of Eli. Verse 14, have a look. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. So Eli let this slide. After all, it was only a small change, right? And it wasn't like they weren't deserving. You know, running the tabernacle was a tough job. And so we get a slightly better meal deal. Now, What's the matter? Well, friends, like many seemingly small, insignificant sins, once you open that door just a smidge, well, it rarely stops there, does it? Now cue the new two guys, Hophni and Phineas, and verse fifteen. Have a look at it. But even before the fat was burned, remembering that the fat was always God's allotted portion, even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, "Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw." So having taken over from the old man, Hoffney and Finis decide they're not really big fans of boiled meat. You know, we're tired of the fondue. And so from now on, here's how it's going to work. The sacrifice goes to us first for our bellies. Now let us offer the fat. Then you can take whatever you want. Yeah, no, that's ours too. If you don't hand it over, we'll take it by force. So Hophni and Phineas, not satisfied with their dad's little cue jump, push straight to the front. We'll take the best and you and God can fight over the rest. And with that, these two men completely corrupt the entire sacrificial system. With the altar now their personal barbecue, Eli's sons may as well name the tabernacle H&P's Bar and Grill. What did God think of his house being turned into their personal steakhouse? Well, friends, it's right there in verse 17, isn't it? Have a look. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And so, friends, we are now getting a picture as to why verse 12 says what it says, aren't we? Indeed, friends, looking again at verse 12, the precise word used to describe these two men is Belial. Eli's sons were Belial. Now, when you hear that word, If you've been a Christian for a little while, chances are it rings a bell for you. I'm sure I've read that. I'm sure I've heard that mentioned somewhere else in the Bible. And if you're thinking that, you're right. Because Paul uses the very same word when challenging the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Have a listen. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And considering some of the sinful practices creeping into this church, you have to wonder whether 1 Samuel chapter 2 was front of mind when Paul wrote those words down. Sure, they hadn't all fallen headlong into the corruption of these two men. But as we've seen, those two don't mark the starting of that journey, do they? But where it inevitably leads. And so Paul seeks to head this church off at the pass. Heads up, guys. Now, where are you heading? Where are you guys going? The compromises you're making, the practices creeping into your lives. The path you're putting your foot on isn't the narrow one that leads to life, but the other one that leads to destruction. And so Paul gets up in their grill, doesn't he? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And friends, with it put as starkly and clearly as that, The reply may come back at him. The way of Belial, a nickname given to Satan himself. Paul, how could you suggest such a thing? We're a church. But friends, the way of Belial is never presented to a church with big flashing arrow signs that read, Come one, come all, this way to the road of destruction, does it? No, no, the the path of Belial, as we see right here in verse 13 begins with a, a slight little nudge, a whisper to make a seemingly insignificant change. And so we take that little side road. But as we start down it, it's not long before we get another nudge and another. And another. Friends, the, the way of Belial hardly, if ever, is presented to us holus bolus, but bit by bit. But make no mistake, Hophni and Phineas is where these tiny compromises take us. And so, as we hear the B word ascribed to them, and hear it from Paul as a warning to us. This is a very good moment to take stock and ask ourselves, what path am I currently walking on? What detours am I being beckoned down? Because as we see in the life of Hophni and Phineas, one detour, verse 13, always leads to another, verse 15. And once we're on that track, those detours just keep coming. And so we hit verse 22, where Eli finds out the tent of meeting is now being used to describe something else entirely. Indeed, friends, these men's behaviour becomes so debauched, it shocks even the citizens of Shiloh such that Eli is forced to confront them. Pick it up, middle of verse 23. He says to them, I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. They have hardened and hardened and hardened their hearts against God. And so now in judgment, he sets the way of their hearts in stone. Friends, a great commentary on this verse is found in the first chapter of Romans. Have a read when you get home, starting at verse 18. And so their days are numbered. A truth now brought to Eli, brought to their father by a prophet. You see that in the heading there. And you'll know it is God, this prophet said, who has removed them when they both die on the same day. That's in verse 34. But their end will also mark Eli's end. But his end will also mark a new beginning, the prophet says. Friends, cast your eyes to verse 35. That's the key verse here. Have a look at it. The prophet says to Eli, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house And he will minister before my anointed one always. Friends, could the one the prophet is speaking about here truly be Samuel? I mean, sure, Elliot Ness wound up being untouchable, but Samuel is just a kid. Has he really been able to grow up in that cesspool? and not be touched, not be influenced by it at all? Friends, let's quickly go back and have a look, because while Hophni and Phinehas dominate the story here, every now and then Samuel comes into view. And we're given little updates on how he's going. Have a look, for example, from verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Is young Samuel following in their footsteps? Next verse, have a look. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Friends, what a contrasting picture these two verses give us. There's Hophni and Phinehas prancing around in their shiny, jewel-encrusted ephod, filling their faces, destroying the sacrifice, while young Samuel, in his little, plain, trainee, priestly garment, faithfully gets on with his duties. Another update comes our way again at the bottom of that paragraph. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And then after being told about Hophni and Phinehas' certain demise, the spotlight goes back to Samuel once more. Verse 26, have a look. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. And so we see, don't we, not only do these men's corruption not touch Samuel at all, but their, their downfall is contrasted by Samuel's rise throughout. In all the darkness and debauchery going on, here's this young boy, little boy, faithfully performing his duties day in and day out in his little linen ephod. And reflecting on the great dark light contrast here, a preacher and minister, Alistair Begg, writes this, We should never underestimate the part assigned to children in the purposes of God. We should never underestimate the part assigned to children in the purposes of God. Friends, that's a good word, isn't it? Because that particular temptation is a constant, isn't it? Seen even in Jesus' own disciples. And when Jesus saw it in them, he didn't miss the opportunity, did he, to set them straight? Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In our series just gone by in Matthew, you may remember, it was the children and only the children who sang Hosanna to the king of David at the temple. And when the Pharisees demanded that Jesus shut them up, remember his response to them? Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? And friends, the story of Samuel, chapter 2, is clearly another one of those ordained moments, isn't it? As this little boy continued to stay true to the Lord despite all that was going on around him, continued to don his little linen ephod every morning with a heart devoted to God, with a heart that refused to be touched, or swayed by the big people around him. And friends, seeing all of this play out, the question now comes to us, doesn't it? What is this story telling us? What is our takeaway from 1 Samuel chapter 2 in all of this? Well, friends, if you're not aware, there is a line of thinking in some Christian circles that look at passages like this one and say, we can't really make any direct application between Samuel and us. The reason? Because Samuel was a child that God specifically raised up for a very particular purpose. Samuel was divinely chosen to lead Israel out of darkness. As such... The point and the only point of this passage is we are to be encouraged that God's promises and purposes can't be thwarted. His good mission for his nation will be fulfilled no matter what. Now friends, while I agree with that, while that actually is 100% true, The story of Samuel absolutely is a great encouragement to us that God is a good God and he will keep all of his promises. Well, that's true. It's important, pardon the pun, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw Samuel out as a model of faith because he is such a model. Little Samuel is exhibit A to us of Jesus' encouragement to have a faith like a child. To remain true when everything around, despite the corruption we see and have to swim in ourselves, we can stay true too. We can look to Samuel as a model of faith. Friends, the fact that chapter 2 keeps us updated on the faithfulness of this little one despite the darkness swirling around him, is not to remove him as an example, but that we might see it. See that by simply trusting and following God and not the ways of men, Samuel, at a very young age, became the wisest, godliest, most centred, stable, joyful person in that entire nation. While Hophni and Phineas followed the way of Belial, little Samuel stuck with the Lord. And as we see where their two paths took them, the words of Jesus light up. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great and wonderful encouragement that your ways, your promises can't be thwarted by evil, by evil men. Lord, that you do raise up people like Samuel just at the right time and the right place. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that this would be a spur and an encouragement to us, but also a spur in our own walk, in our own lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take the example here of little Samuel and recognize That there is a way that seems right and good to a man. But your way is not hard, it's not difficult to understand. It can be hard to follow at times, but it is understandable to a little child. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to have that innocent trust like Samuel did. Forgive us for the ways that we don't. Forgive us for the ways that we reject it and make it difficult. Help us to be like a little one, trusting you and knowing that you keep all your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.